Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. Episode 139 is full of peace and a smattering of love as the Boers gather in Vereniging to discuss the British terms of surrender. As you can well imagine, this is a bittersweet moment. Men who have not seen their children for years are reunited on May 15th, while further afield, in the prisoner of war camps, the news is greeted with both joy and sorrow. So here we are in Vereniging, May 15th, 1902. It's a settlement I narrated Denise Reitz passed on his way back from the Natal front two years before. This is a small mining village on the banks of the Wald River, where nearly two years before I had watched the Irishman burning the railway stores during the retreat from the south, he writes. Remember, he's writing the Jan Smuts and the other representatives chosen by Boers in the Eastern Transvaal. There will be representatives from the Free State too, who will be housed in an array of British Army tents along with the other Transvaal emissaries, each region with its own section. The British have prepared this tented camp with precision, laid out in a square with the delegates meeting in a large central marquee, a mess tent to one side, toilets or long drops as they're known in South Africa a short distance away. Almost the first man I saw as we entered was my father, shaggy and unkempt, but strong and well, and our greeting after so long a parting was deep and heartfelt, writes Denis Reitz. Mr. Reitz Sr. had been separated from his family like others in this war, and now it was time to reconnect. The typically stoic comment from Reitz belies the utter joy in discovering that he could account for almost everyone. After his tribulations, he mentions the reunion in one sentence in his book, Commander. But where was the stern General Christian de Vett? Also missing were a handful of the Free State delegates. Eventually, on the morning of the 15th of May, the day of the meeting, de Vett and a few hardliners arrived fashionably late. The other senior political and military leadership were already in Fruniching, along with Commandant General Louis Bourget and de la Rey, Vice President Berger of the Transvaal, members of the two governments, and of course, Jan Smuts. Reitz Senior was also present with J.B. Kroch, L.J. Mayer, L.J. Jacobs. Every Boer Republic was represented by 30 delegates. For the Free State, Judge Herzog was present, along with Secretary of State W.J.B. Brebner, Commander-in-Chief de Vett, and C.H. Ulufied. Missing was the man who'd survived so many incidents and battles on the felt, President Stein. I was exceedingly sorry to find that President Stein was seriously ill, Debate writes in his biography, Three Years War. For the last six weeks he had been in the doctor's hands and since his arrival in Pretoria had been under the care of Dr. van der Merwe of Krugersdorp. The doctor was blunt, telling Stein that he'd probably die if he travelled to attend the peace talks in Vereniging. One of the most vocal bitter enders was absent. We asked ourselves what should we do without the president at our meetings. At this moment he seemed more indispensable to us than ever before. That was because Stein, like de Vett and de la Rey, wanted to fight on while most of the others wanted to end the war. Stein was a statesman in the best sense of the word, but he was also extremely difficult to negotiate with because he refused to budge when it came to Boer independence. That of course was totally out of the question and he didn't have the global understanding to realize that there were other ways out of this war. Of him, if of any man, it may be said that he never swerved from his duty to his country. No task was too great for him, no burden too heavy, writes the bed. But it was the war itself that had brought Stain to the verge of collapse. Sickness had laid him low, and he was worn out and weak as a child. 
Weak, did I say? Yes, but only in the body. His mind was as strong and brave, as clear as ever. Stain wasn't completely out of the loop. Later in May, the Boer representatives travelled to Krugersdorp to discuss the talks with him before they met with Lord Kitchener. So, Vereniging was a hive of activity with the British soldiers guarding the camp, the Boer leadership within, about to decide the future of both the republics and the subcontinent. No small matter then. First, they signed the attendance register and were sworn in. We, the undersigned, do duly swear that we as special national representatives will remain true to our people, country and government, they intoned. True to our people. This phrase has been bandied about so regularly by all sorts of politicians in South Africa. It makes your head spin. Virtually every political aegis has come with its tranche of those who duly swear to remain true to what they call our people. Our people implies another type of citizen, those who, of course, are their people or not our people. The language of political discourse in South Africa has saddled the citizens with the language of us and them for so long, it's like a psychosis. Back in the large marquee in Perinichung, the Boers chose General C.F. Bayers as the chairman, who promptly called on the Reverend Mr. Kestel to offer a prayer. After a few more words, the meeting adjourned until 3pm, whereupon President Berger outlined what lay ahead. The difficulties which come before us, said Berger, are like a great mountain at the foot of which we have just arrived. The state of affairs is very serious and that the future looms dark before us. There will be differences of opinion, he continued. Then he described the correspondence that had taken place between the Netherlands government and the British and the background to the peace process. We felt, continued Berger, that we had no power to surrender our independence and that we were only justified in making such terms of peace and would not endanger our national existence. Again, the divergent opinion was obvious for De Wett. Any agreement with the English to drop Boer demands of independence was endangering their national existence. For Smuts and Boerta, a continuation of war would inevitably lead to endangering their national existence. Ninety years later, I heard the same debates at the Conference for Democratic South Africa, or CADESA, which took place east of Johannesburg. There, the National Party of F.W. de Klerk and the ANC of Nelson Mandela sat down to talk about endangering each other's national existence. Both hard left and hard right were hard at work trying to continue fighting each other to the death. During the CADESA talks of 1992, the far-right Afrikaner or the AWB, Gate crashed the venue using armoured vehicles, and there were seconds in that incident where negotiations may have ended forever. Then Kadesa almost ended again when a Zulu MP attacked a township called Boipatong on the 17th of June 1992. Forty-five people were hacked to death there, mainly women, and I was on the scene along with the Sunday Times team shortly after the rampage. The carnage was indescribable. Nelson Mandela pulled the ANC delegates out of the peace process immediately after he visited the blood-soaked scene. However, the stakes were too high, and negotiations eventually began again. Like in Ferenichung 1902, President Berger called for unity amongst the Boers. Let us all be of one mind. If we are united, then will the nation be united. But if we are divided, in what a plight will the nation find herself? Judge Herzog then provided the legal opinion. It was a principle in law that a delegate is not to be regarded as a mere agent or mouthpiece of a constituency, but on the contrary, when dealing with public affairs, 
as a plenipotentiary. With the right, whatever his brief might be, of acting to the best of his judgment. State Procureur Smuts agreed with this analysis. It was now clear to all that they had the room to be flexible as long as they believed it was for the good of the people. This is actually quite crucial. What it meant was that even though the representatives were told no peace without independence, they had to use their immediate negotiation tactics to find a resolution that was balanced. It may mean no independence. Then Louis Wurter made his report. In the districts of Utrecht and Freyheit, where the Holkrans massacre had just taken place of Boers, as you heard last week, the store of maize was so small that it would not last long. Boers had cattle, but very little grain. In Wackerström, there was only a month of maize left. In Urmelo, Bethel, Stanerton and Middleburg, maize was going to run out in less than a month. The commandos in Heidelberg and North Pretoria had no maize at all. In Boxburg, there were no cattle. In the area between Ferenching and Ermelo, Boerter had counted six goats. There were no horses. But Boerter was most concerned about the increased activity of black South Africans. Holkruns had just occurred where 56 Boers were massacred by a Zulu MP, and that proved his point. That's why I mentioned Boy Patong. Isn't it a strange coincidence that a Zulu MP attacking the Boers in 1902 and a Zulu MP attacking black residents of Boy Patong in 1992 both occurred in the midst of a peace process? That's history for you. Echoes of the past resonate right down to the present. Poor women, said Boerter, were in a pitiable state. Incidents of rape were increasing as the women were left behind on the felt. The Transvaal had fewer than 6,500 men left to fight. Boerter concluded by outlining the three greatest difficulties facing the Boers were a lack of horses, dwindling food, and the miserable condition of their women and children. Free State Commander-in-Chief De Vett then stood up and addressed the Assembly, stressing he'd leave the analysis for each of his generals to outline themselves. Still, he wanted to draw attention to two positive developments. Firstly, the Basutu were beginning to show signs of moving away from the English and to support the Boers, and secondly, that he had 6,000 men in fairly good condition who wanted to fight on. The Basutu angle was rather contentious. And we know now it was only the border Basutu clans who were making money out of trading with the Boers who were running out of goods. General Delaray, said the vet, like myself, does not know what task he has to perform here. However, he feels bound to state there is a scarcity of everything, but precisely the same state of affairs existed a year ago. The vet was stretching the truth here again. It was not precisely the same state of affairs. The Boers were in a far worse condition. Then, when his burghers were at that time without food, thundered De Vette, well, he went and got it for them. A huge swell of cheering greeted his speech. General Bayers of the Waterbag was next, and he explained how fortunes were mixed. In Sotbansburg, food supply was good because they were buying from local black chiefs, but there were also increased attacks on Boer homesteads by some other clans. General Muller of the Boxburg commander told the delegates he too was buying food from black suppliers around the eastern Transvaal, but there was also what he called a tendency to mutiny by local blacks. General Fronemann, based in Ladybrand, said Basutu people were providing Boers with food and even military support against the British. A few other leaders spoke of their plentiful supply of grain and oxen. But 
General Nevoet of Forismith said his area was utterly devastated. So too General Brand of Bethuli, who said the southwestern Free State was on its last legs. General Vessels of Harrismith reported huge crowds of black refugees passing through his region, upending food supplies. And it was then that the assembled Boers heard from the future South African Prime Minister, Ian Smuts. There was a hush when he spoke. Smuts was an extraordinary man in so many ways. Although slight of build, he filled the marquee with his brilliant analysis of the reality the Boers faced. He described his commando's actions in the Cape, travelling close to Grahamstown, then Grafrenet, and finally into the northern deserts. However, his message about Afrikaners in the Cape was a clincher in many ways. The Transvaal and Free State Boers had held out hope for the entire war that the Cape Boers would rise up. There will be no general uprising. Smuts said flatly. Furthermore, the reports that represented such a rising as possible had exaggerated matters. Smuts said a scarcity of grass meant the Boers' main weapon, horses, were unable to function effectively in most of the Cape anyway. A general uprising, therefore, was impossible. Representatives were grim as Smuts ended his comments. As to the continuation of the war and methods of that nature, they must naturally be settled by the republics and not by the Cape Colony. With that, the meeting adjourned until eight that night. When they caucused again, each Boer general outlined the conditions of their regions and almost everyone admitted they were surviving by buying grain from black farmers and chiefs. It was clear as they spoke that there were two types of Boer when it came to the relationship with their black brothers and sisters. While most of the Boers had built a mutual trust and dependency, including parlays and bartering, those in the north and western Transvaal were indulging in looting and ethnic cleansing. General Kemp said around Krugersdorp, Rustenburg and further west and north, the Boers took what they wanted from the blacks because, in his words, it was not their property. He was only taking back what really belonged to the Burgers. The next day, May 16th, a Friday, there were a few motions on diplomacy which the delegates supported. But it was a certain P.R. Falyun from Heidelberg who summarized what the majority were thinking as they faced an historical moment, and it was in language reminiscent of the Old Testament when he spoke. We can apply to our own country words of scripture. The place whereupon thou standest is holy ground, he said, his voice clear in the morning. The soil on which we are now standing, wet as it is with the blood and tears of our forefathers, may well be regarded as holy ground. That we should ever have to surrender this country is a horrible thought, yet it must be faced. Ninety years later, the same kind of sentiment was expressed at Cadessa by national party leaders. My opinion is that we must endeavour to bring this war to an end said Fulun in 1902. In response, Commandant Rida of Ruval in the Free State said, I know the times are very dark, but still there are some rays of light. Will you not continue fighting until you are relieved? I maintain that our independence must be a sine qua non of any negotiations. General Kemp leapt to his feet after Rida. I am fully aware of the very serious position in which we are placed. When we recall how much this war had cost us and what rivers of blood have flowed, we feel that it is impossible to surrender. I will fight on till I die. 
Well, English leaders like Lord Milner loved Kemp because Milner wanted the Boers to fight on until there were none left, leaving a great empty felt into which he could inject English-speaking immigrants. Smuts and other Boer leaders were not as sanguine, nor should it be said as foolish or arrogant. After all, it was the Boer mantra to live to fight another day. Suicidal tendencies would only doom the Boer people. Hubris in the face of a present and dangerous threat is a terminal condition. There were a dozen districts in the Transvaal that were no longer able to fight. Others said to go with a trust in God, while Commandant Ace of the Pretoria Commander said fighting would mean abandoning their women and children to the mercy of black South Africans for food and their future, and no God would then save the folk. What is really interesting about this debate is how it was repeated in 1992. As I read the documents of the Boer discussion in 1902, they appear so similar to debates taking place amongst white South Africans 90 years later. So in 1902, a resolution was proposed that in order to expedite the Boer position, a commission should be made up of Jakob Smits and Judge Herzog, along with the two state presidents. They should then draw up a draft document to be laid before the delegates the next morning. Still, they argued long into that Friday night. It was then... That night, that the hardliner General de la Rey, who spoke almost last, and it was his position that caused many of the bitter enders to reflect deeply and perhaps shift their position. I will not detain you long, he said, which is often the words of someone who's about to make a lengthy speech. De la Rey admitted he had been in the dark about how difficult things had become for many districts in the Transvaal in particular. So far as I am concerned, I cannot think of laying down my arms. Yet it appears to me that some parts of the country will be compelled by starvation to give up the struggle. He was spot on. Whatever the firebrands and grandiose words of other hardliners here was one of the most feared and courageous men of this war who was commenting lucidly emotional but thoughtful. He mentioned the fact that Germany would not raise a finger to help and the Boers needed international support he was one of the few Boers on that day who brought in global developments. De La Rey stared about him, and the next comment was perhaps the most profound he had made in his 20-minute speech. You must remember that everything has been sacrificed. Cattle, goods, money, wife and child. Our men are going about naked, and some of our women have nothing but clothes made of skins to wear. Is not this the bitter end? De La Rey, one of the toughest, most intransigent men of the entire war, said it was time to negotiate. It was the last chance because following this, the English would crush the Boers emphatically. Finally, General Christian de Vett, that voice we have heard throughout the series, had the last word on that Friday night, standing in a marquee in Ferenichen. It is said with some truth that the gold fields have been a curse to us, but surely there is no reason that they should continue to be so. De Vette outlined how the gold fields would drive development in a future South Africa, use the cash to build a new nation. But on the matter of suffering of civilians, he was dismissive. I feel deeply for our women and children. I am giving earnest consideration to their miserable plight, but... The sufferings are among what we may call the necessary circumstances of the war. Ah yes, collateral damage. 
Tibet had always believed the Boer War was a religious war, the struggle of the people of the covenant, God's people. With those words ringing in their ears, the delegates ended their discussions and went to bed. On Saturday the 17th of May, the proposal of the Commission was read and accepted. The main points were essentially a repeat of their initial position. The meeting of national representatives on both republics ran the document. Notwithstanding the above-mentioned refusal of the British government, still wishes to give expression to the ardent desire of the two republics to retain their independence. They also proposed A. To give up all foreign relations and embassies. B. To accept the protectorate of Great Britain. C. To surrender parts of the territory of the South African Republic. And D. To conclude a defensive alliance with Great Britain. It was this document that they would take back to Lord Kitchener and Lord Milner. The meeting in Vereniging then closed with a prayer. The next phase of the peace talks would move to Pretoria, where the small Boer delegation, as we'll see, would present a somewhat shocked Kitchener with their unchanged position. Sitting alongside Kitchener would be Milner, who was rubbing his hands in glee, believing the Boers had signed their own death warrant. In what would be a symbolic shift, Kitchener and the moderate Boers would now have to deal with both the bitter enders like De Wett and the bitter enders like Milner. As with the ANC National Party negotiations in 1992, both sides had elements who actively were attempting to destroy a good faith process that would end in peace. In 1992 it was Rolf Meyer and Cyril Ramaphosa. In 1902 it was Lord Kitchener and Louis Butter. How extraordinary history repeats itself in unexpected ways. With that, we need to down our quills and douse the lamps. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time and inclination. A thank you to all those sending me messages of support and motivation to continue this series. Well, I'm going to continue uh, talking about some of the remarkable characters that we've met and their futures. People like Gandhi, Churchill, Douglas Haig, Johnny Hamilton, Boerta Smuts, Delare, Devet, Denise Rates, and of course Sol Plaki and others. Well, you can mail me through the website abwarpodcast.com or contact me through my Twitter feed at Des Latham. Until next week, social distancing protocols observed. Goodbye. O bring me terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar my Sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woont my Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen.